Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. For many moviegoers in New York, the past few weeks at the Film Society of Lincoln Center have virtually belonged to Lucchino Visconti. The Visconti retrospective has included Rocco and his brothers, The Leopard, Death in Venice, Ossessione, as well as rediscoveries of Ludwig, The Stranger, The Damned, and more. The record attendance suggests that Visconti's richly drawn canvases, larger-than-life characters, and sweeping historical dramas still have a special pull on the big screen. And decay never looked so good. In this episode of the podcast, I talked about Visconti's work with Nick Pinkerton, a regular contributor here, and Florence Almazzini, Associate Director of Programming at the Film Society, and one of the programmers of the retrospective. Here's the conversation. I'm Nick Rapol, Editor-in-Chief of Film Comet, and I'm very pleased to be joined by... Nick Pinkerton, a wandering film critic. Uh, most recently, I've written about both the Visconti retrospective at Film Society for Art Forum and uh, for the TIFF.net website, a piece about various adaptations of James M. Cain's The Postman Always ah. Rings Twice. And uh, I'm France Almuzini. I'm the Associate Director of Programming at Film Society and one of the curators for the Visconti retrospective that's taking place now at Film Society of Lincoln Center. Visconti, where to begin? Obviously, usually associated with kind of these grandiose, opulent, you know, costume period dramas. But again, looking at the beginning and the end of his career, that sometimes gets left out of that narrative as if it's these outliers. But that just seems to be a persistent thing that happens. And and I wonder if that's part of why he remains a filmmaker that people kind of keep rediscovering. I mean, I would perhaps take some issue with the idea that the early films are different animals entirely. I think in the case of La Terra Trema, you would not be unjustified in calling that movie an outlier. Uh, there's nothing else quite like it in the filmography and maybe Bellissima as well. But uh, Visconti's first feature, um, Ossessione, which is an uncredited uh, adaptation of James M. Cain's The Postman Always uh, Rings Twice, which takes place in a kind of grotty, lower-class milieu and concerns characters who are sort of marginal characters. It has all of the sort of earmarks. It ticks all of the boxes of neorealism, Avant la Lettre, movies completed in 1943. But at one and the same time, there's a poise and an elegance to the shooting of the film, a kind of quiet grandeur almost to the composition and the unfurling of these scrolling sequence shots. I mean, even though it has to do with uh, people who have been kicked around by life a little bit and does exist in this uh, rougher milieu, you can still kind of see all of the basic visual signatures of Visconti at work. And by the time of Senso, which is, what, 1954, I think everything's already pretty well in place. That's the movie where everything really kind of gels in terms of the 
historical scope of the thing in terms of Visconti really thinking as to how to match musical figures and uh, musical movements with uh, visual accompaniment to create this sort of totally realized audiovisual work. So relatively early on, on, I think he's kind of hit on the format that he's going to continue with. Yeah, I think I saw Ludwig, as I was mentioning before, a number of years ago at uh, um, when Florence was programming at BAM. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is actually a different print, right? This is not. It's a different print. Yeah, I think I did a retro. It was the winter 2004. The uh, Cinecita was our partner and made a print of Ludwig for that retrospective. We were not allowed to charge admission because of the... Visconti uh, Foundation. And, I, I remember uh, that. Which just, it was like insane. We were like, we had to pay for the print, but we couldn't charge admission. <laughs> and <laughs> then that print went on tour and got damaged and we could never play it again, even so we paid for the print. So I've been asking for a new print f- since 2004. <laughs> and we made a new print. which looks amazing. I mean, the depth of the color and uh, it looks great. Um, there was a DCP restoration recently, but it's we looked at it and it's not. I mean, it's a scan from the a DVD that has absolutely no colors, no depths, and it didn't look good enough for for Visconti. So, I mean, that's interesting. So that's a clear case of where you rejected the DCP <laughs> in this case. <laughs> yes, I hope the um, distributor is not listening to this. But <laughs> yeah, I, I told them, I'm like, I'm yeah. sorry, it's not. Yeah. It's just. Not it doesn't translate, and the, the texture in Ludwig is so important to the story that you just you need like you need to get this and uh, all these scene on the snow where it's just like grayish. I was like, that's not Ludwig; it's it's bluish on the on the print, and the other one is just. It's a very nocturnal movie yeah. too, mm-hmm. because he's sort of addicted to these <laughs> night rides, and he's always. You know, as the kind of archetypal romantic <laughs> figure, uh, you know, very novalis, like always, you know, out at the in the gloaming hour, uh, and yeah, the, these very kind of pushed dusk and dawn scenes are so important to it. I know the so horses going slowly, the snow falling down, the looks. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, seeing that movie uh, now, what I mean, what do, what have you? rediscovered when you're watching it now, like even just compared to, to watching it in 2004? Well, I've seen that film uh, many, many times because it was always on TV in France when I was growing up, but it was, um, I guess it was shortened and it was surely dubbed. I can't remember, but I'm sure it was dubbed in French. <laughs> Any movies with Alain Delon or Romy Schneider were always on TV and always dubbed, so we didn't... It doesn't really matter for the Italian film because they're always dubbed, but... And I, so I was already familiar with it, but it, you know, it didn't look that good. I think I also had a black and white TV at the time. So. <laughs> I didn't know it was a color film for a really long time. <laughs> Same with the leopard. Uh-huh. Um, so rediscovering it now, like watching it, you know, like on the really large screen uh, where you can really see all the details and all the angles, um, all this, um, um, you know, like zoom, like, in and out um, that he does. It's, it's just extraordinary experience. It's like uh, I'm revisiting my my entire childhood and I'm discovering like new things in the film that I didn't see before. Mm-hmm. Even from 
seeing it at that BAM screening, which it, now I understand why it was a free screening. That's kind of funny. I wondered, <laughs> wait, they're just giving away tickets <laughs> to see Ludwig? Okay. <laughs> we were very generous. Yeah, very generous. <laughs> um, and the, yeah, big screen there. It was uh, great to see that. But I mean, it, it's a strange movie to see about like a, a royal because the idea of him being pushed out because he's mentally unfit is mm -hmm. a strange way to it's a strange story to tell about a king and when i went to high school there was this just ridiculous movie called the madness of king george i don't oh, know if you yeah. remember, remember that <laughs> yes. so yeah so it was kind of like that was my last uh, reference for you know crazy aristocrat mm -hmm. but it, it it kind of added you know another another layer to to the to the whole idea that I mean, there's always a bit of a sense of decay in, in this aristocratic mm -hmm. surroundings, and that's just like another aspect to it that maybe his perspective, you know, is is itself somehow flawed. And, and I don't know. I mean, it dialogues really quite clearly with the feature that immediately precedes it, Visconti's uh, adaptation of Thomas Mann's uh, Death in Venice, in that both films, in their narrative trajectory, basically are concerned with observing a human in the process of rot and decay. Death in Venice, uh, you end with Dirk Bogard having gone to a salon in a you know quarantine Venice where the plague is running amok and getting his hair styled and getting patted down with uh, this uh, you know foundation that looks essentially like mortician's wax. <laughs> <laughs> And ending as this sort of marionette with strings cut figure flopped out on a beach chair uh, in the midst of feverish erotic reverie. <laughs> in Ludwig, we follow Helmut Berger, who at one point I think is praised as being the most handsome of Europe's crowned heads, and indeed he is. He's a very beautiful young Helmut Berger. And by the end of the film, his teeth are completely like covered in tar. Uh, he's gotten jowly and has the like rimmed eyes of a compulsive masturbator. <laughs> um, Is that an official diagnosis? <laughs> <laughs> and and you can even go back further. I mean, the shot that. Um, is often talked about um, in The Leopard, where you have Burt Lancaster's Sicilian gentrymen and family en route to uh, church, I believe it is, and they go in coated completely in road dust, and the impression given quite willfully is that these are people who are already half ghosts, who have already sort of passed out of their prime. Um, and this is a moment that, Visconti is incredibly interested in is the moment when the reins of power are handed over from the traditional aristocratic bearers to a new bureaucratic bourgeois class. And that's very much what the underlying subject matter is. And Ludwig, it's the end of an independent monarchy in Bavaria, consolidation of power in a uh, newly dominant Prussia. In both The Leopard and Senso, you have as a backdrop Italian unification. And in some ways, then, you can think of Ludwig as a prequel 
a belated prequel to a movie that Visconti made in 1969, which is The Damned, uh, takes right. place in Germany during the Third Reich, and is pr- off the top of my head, I'm going to say the only movie that Visconti made that's specifically concerned with the haute bourgeoisie or the newly moneyed industrialist class. I think otherwise he tends to gravitate high and low. To, right. he, he has a attraction to aristocrats and he has politically proletarian, politically and probably sexually as well, proletarian sympathies. I think you you wrote in, in your piece that, you know, an aristocrat by birth, a communist by choice. Yeah, the red count. The red count. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think he was ever a card-carrying uh, commie, oh, okay. but... Um, I think uh, the Italian Communist Party put money into Terra Trema and in all but actual affiliation on the books mouthed the uh, sentiments of the Italian Communist Party. I mean, it's interesting also to think of uh, The the Leopard uh, in the 60s. I mean, I I don't, you know, as a a movie, because it's almost a movie that kind of gets unstuck in time a little because of it, its own history as a, as, a, as a movie that wasn't seen in full by, by a lot of people for a long time. I mean, is, is there anything, is there anything there, you know, like thinking about, you know, the kind of transfer of, of power that you're talking about? I mean, this, obviously in the 60s, there was a lot of uh, upheaval and moving into 1968. And, you know, even with the French New Wave, that reflected a kind of reflected the middle class and upper middle class in a certain way. Not that the class analysis is the most interesting, but it is, I'm just, I'm not sure uh, I've heard the leopard connected to the 60s. Is that, is there anything there or, I don't know? I wasn't thinking about it in this way, but. Um. I have, I have a pet theory. Oh, please. That I was working on on the subway over here. Oh, good. I think in some ways Visconti is almost diametrically opposed to the 1960s or to some of the sort of prevalent thinking in European film culture or let's say elevated European film culture of the 1960s, even though he had worked as an assistant for Renoir, who was thought of very much as kind of the godfather of the French new wave. I don't think that he had much in the way of common cause with the new wave filmmakers at all. And I don't think there was a great deal of love among that loosely grouped cabal of filmmakers for him either. What I do think is that Visconti grooves in a really interesting way with what's going on, not only in cinema, but in wider popular culture at the beginning of the 1970s. And I think of this because on the subway over i've belatedly been catching up with simon reynolds book about glam rock uh that came out last year (laughs) and thinking a little bit about how this sort of attraction repulsion with the appurtenances of extreme luxury that's displayed in visconti's movies interacts interestingly with some of the stagecraft that, say, David Bowie would be indulging in a few years down the line. And then I, you know, start thinking a little more, like, for example, I'm, you know, reading about uh, 
T-Rex's like first breakthrough single, which is Ride a White Swan. Oh and God. how does you know, how does Helmut Berger make his big entry in the Grotto Azzurro in uh, Ludwig but riding a white swan and who produced <laughs> Ride a White Swan? Tony Visconti. <laughs> And what else did Tony Visconti uh, produce? Morrissey's You Have Killed Me, which contains the line, Visconti is me. So there's some kind of wow. vast conspiracy that I'm starting to break yeah, through. I think you're finally, yeah, this, this is the secret history of Visconti. Yeah. Well, I mean, the damned is totally like uh, Bowie, uh, Berlin era. Absolutely. Um, you yeah. know, from the haircut and uh, yeah, yeah. The, the dress and the, the leather and... Yeah, young men fooling around. And I, yeah. in the in the broadest sense, you could say that I think so. A lot of the sensibility that we associate with the 1960s, and this goes not only with sort of the new wave filmmakers, but with things going on in other areas of pop culture. This sort of stripping away of artifice, whereas glam is artifice right. coming back in a very very major way and then also in elsewhere in cinema you can see a enormous debt owed by i think fassbender who was quite vocal about his adoration of the damned for example so i think he's a figure very much out of time in the earnest 1960s but in the 70s, more fey and artifice obsessed early 1970s, he seems to fit like a glove. Right, hand in glove. Yeah. That's probably why I love him so much. Totally my era. He's totally sad. Well, I mean, this seems like this This reminds me because I was reading an old film common article by David Ehrenstein about the leopard when when they were first reassembling it in the early 80s and, and then and touring touring that uh, and, and he ends with a kind of interesting quote he says first he's first he's just has to put down everything around Visconti uh, he says unable to deal with the past unwilling to deal with the present many filmmakers today toy with an imaginary future too trivial for scrutiny I, I mean I don't know if he's talking about the Omega Man or something but uh, um, the leopard set in the past is a film of the future so it's kind of interesting to, to think of it that way. Um, but then the reason he says he talks about it is partly just because of its, for lack of a better word, it's like production values, you know, you know, orchestration um, and, and, and just having such a total vision um, that didn't seem like, you know, at first a lot of people took up. But interesting in this article, he also compares, he, he kind of attributes like the wedding scene in The Godfather um, and, 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 you know, a lot of what Bertolucci's doing in the 70s to, to Visconti. I mean, the title of the Bertolucci movie, Before the Revolution, is sort of constantly revolving in my head uh, while watching right. these Visconti films because that's very much, that sort of precipice moment is one that he's returning to time and time again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is such a strange, it is such a strange figure. I mean, and I don't know. I when it went, you know, with the Visconti series, I, I thought, oh, are, are people going to like rebel against the idea of like the aristocrat director somehow? Is this the wrong time for it? Or no. I, I don't think so. I think yeah. also because of his um, changes in his life, like coming from the fascist to going to the communist and embracing, you know, like high and low uh, classes, I don't think there'll be perceived this way by anyone, no, no. not today. <laughs> yeah. People are like breaking into the wall to read and burning the prints. <laughs> no, I need to send them back to Italy. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Please don't. 
I would I would venture to guess maybe that there's something about Visconti that might almost appeal more to the lay viewer than to a diehard cinephile crowd because there's he has that thing which often alienates interpreters which is that there's not you don't have to interpret the hell out of what is interesting about these mm-hmm. Visconti films yeah, like that's they're yeah, splendid yeah. they're massive in scope many of them I mm-hmm. should say the yeah. later mm-hmm. films uh, you can slap your auntie down in front of them and even if she's not going to enthuse over the mise-en-scene or something like that the costumes <laughs> are fabulous and mm-hmm. you know they are very immersive experiences yeah. which I think probably speaks to why they're doing gangbusters business because they provide something that is generally perceived to be not incorrectly as like distinctly cinematic to just completely submerge yourself into this very very scrupulously reproduced world of the past um and i mean i think the appeal is not hard to yeah. put your finger on. That's not to say that there's not a great deal more going on, but you know the the basic inducements are right out in front. Sure. I mean, Antonioni always has this like cooler uh, attraction for like younger nihilist and alienated people, um, and you wonder when you show this country, like, you know, people going to really care other than. I, was, I saw Senso in you know when it came out and um, and uh, actually it's not it's not true. I think people read like a lot more into the film today than maybe twenty years ago or thirty years ago. Like and it's quite different from the Antonioni experience when you play them all back to back. Antonioni is a really interesting, I think, profitable point of comparison because I know that he was very impressed with Ossessioni, particularly when it first appeared. And you can kind of look at these two as certainly not the only, but probably two of the more important Italian filmmakers to move on to, well, obviously Fellini should be in that throng as well but uh, the the three let's say most important filmmakers to define what came after neorealism and i think you can see a lot of moves cribbed from visconti in antonioni's early films most notably chronicle of a love story which is also heavily heavily indebted to the postman always ring uh, rings twice and I think for a short while, at least, Antonioni was paying very, very close attention to what Visconti was doing, not only in terms of moving beyond this singular focus on the travails of the lower classes, but in terms of how he was handling scenes, blocking shots. Uh, I think there's a lot not only in subject matter, but in basic texture uh, that's shared by Assessioni and Chronicle of a Love Affair. Yeah. 
I, I also thought a bit about Ross, Rossellini just for, for his later phase of his career, you know, and when, when he really threw himself into experiments with replicating history or simulating the, you know, like being there in the moment somehow. And especially in this, in this, in the 70s, um, the big contrast with, with, with how Visconti's approach to that is, is pretty interesting too. I mean, the big difference there, of course, is Visconti, even if he's a kind of jaundiced romantic, even if he's a very soured romantic, he is basically a romantic. Yeah. And he never, even after he's sort of slowed by illness, completely abandons the gestures of abandonment, the sort of sweep and... um and, and the grand gesture never totally leave his vocabulary, whereas those late Rossellini films, which are some of the most inimitably strange and wonderful so movies weird. that I know, That's so weird, uh, are basically founded in a total abdication of art, or at least in Rossellini's thinking. Right. They're meant to be these entirely objective presentations of historical record whereas in Visconti you have this push-pull between a style that's often very detached and often keeps its subjects at arm's length and the attraction of sort of romantic consumption uh which again i think like senso is kind of the key text because it you know has at its heart this extremely self-destructive sadomasochistically tinged love affair uh between alita valley and uh farley granger's characters i i mean i always love senso too just i mean (laughs) i always love the idea when there's some huge historical event happening that we're going to zero in on like a particular relationship (laughs) like you know uh, i don't know i just that that is like one of the supreme romantic conceits you know that 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 you know that between two people is always bigger than whatever's happening around them i kind of love that i don't know if we've talked a lot about like the the actors i mean you 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 know you you bring up alita valley and, and farley granger but i don't know you know what what are some of our favorite performances or you know um, well, I mean, it's Alain Delon, uh, probably as his best role um, in Visconti. Um, I really, really love Rocco. And Annie Girardot also gives an amazing performance that I don't think re- she replicated after. I don't think she had the career she should have had, uh, starting mm-hmm. like this. Um, Helmut Berger, of course. Uh, yeah. I know it, It's really hard to name them all, but... Um, yeah. uh, uh, Romy Schneider also, I mean, if I thought, uh, you know, using her in Ludwig with a CC role was really a genius move yeah. uh, and changed the way people saw her too. So she changed her career based on um, changing the way of the world that made her famous could yeah. have been. Um, yeah. I mean, he also just pays so much attention to faces mm-hmm. in, in, in a way that he can kind of make a... I, I mean the beauty of Claudia Cardinale in the in the leopard oh, and yeah. uh, in Sandra too. Mm. It's unbelievable. Like she's very animalistic uh, compared to everyone else who uses. Like she's like a wild little animal, and she, <laughs> I don't know, she's just incredible. Yeah, I mean Berger is of course 
wonderful, uh, particularly, I think, in, in Ludwig. But I, I will say I have a particular fondness for the two Lancaster performances, Conversation Piece, um, which is the later, and uh, The Leopard. And a story that I encountered, which may be apocryphal, is that Visconti was initially very wary of Lancaster, who he felt had kind of been foisted on the production in order to uh, secure Hollywood money, but that Lancaster was very wary himself and very observant of his director and essentially adopted most of Visconti's mannerisms in you know, playing this grandee of uh, Sicily <laughs> and that Visconti was very won over to see that this, you know, Bronx boy could so completely... <laughs> Former be, acrobat. Yes. As a, a graduate of DeWitt Clinton High School, uh, could so completely lose himself... Uh, in himself. Yes. <laughs> in his director. In his director. And, and conversation piece is an extraordinary small film. I say small by Visconti's standards. It's, I think, the... Yeah, the first movie that he made after having a fairly debilitating stroke at some point, I think during the post-production on Ludwig, and as opposed to how grand and large canvas a film Ludwig is, this one's almost entirely interior uh, with Lancaster playing an American probably the only American in the entirety of the Visconti canon because he's so, you know, singularly European a director, I would say, um, and really concerned with an idea of Europe. Um, but this sort of Jamesian figure that, that Lancaster plays, this American uh, now living on in uh, Roman Palazzo in Ducal Splendor. Right. Um, yeah, so I, lo I love I love both of those films and yeah. the Lancaster performances. Yeah, it's the only film where it displays like enough humor uh, compared to mm. everything else, where you can laugh and smile way more than in anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, why why is you know I I don't really hear about his films or feel about his films that they feel like self serious or that mm -hmm. somehow they collapse under their weight. I I never really feel that you know except for something like. Ludwig, I don't feel that, but I, I you do feel just mm -hmm. the uh, you know heaviness of the mood, which you're supposed to as mm -hmm. you know as it goes on. The heaviness of the crowd. <laughs> the heaviness of the crowd, yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he it, it is interesting. He's he's not a director where, the, you know that uh, you know the the humor is is always there to kind of grease the wheels a bit, but you don't feel its lack particularly. Well, I mean, I, the the two principal preoccupations are like national upheaval <laughs> and like sexual obsession <laughs> and pain. neither of which are things that really leave a lot of daylight for <laughs> for chuckles yeah no, i mean a little bit like sometimes even in the leopard like the way he looks at the catholic church or like the priests like you know mm -hmm. or in rocco it's more like the motherly love like yeah, you know that true. goes a little bit over like it's so maybe maybe at the time we didn't find this funny i don't know i think seeing it today like it's it's so much, but yeah. Well, I mean, I will say there are, there are moments certainly <laughs> in Ludwig where there's a pronounced camp sensibility. <laughs> 
I think so. But it's always counterbalanced by a kind of morbid grandeur. I go back mm-hmm. again to the ride a white swan moment where uh, Helmut Berger makes his big entrance in this simulacra of Capri's like <laughs> Grotto Zero on, on the back of a, actually it's a cockle shell, not a swan, um, <laughs> a cockle shell boat. And it's particularly at this point in his ongoing physical decay, it's a completely absurd manner of right. self-presentation. Uh, and at one and the same time, you can't help but sort of gawp and be a little impressed <laughs> by <laughs> the regal absurdity of the of the thing and in the like vacillation between these two responses there's a kind of yeah. comedy at work it's true yeah he's really putting it out there <laughs> not being shy I mean, I mean, it, you know, that makes me think a little bit about... Hey, have you ever seen a picture of Visconti smiling? I never <laughs> have. <laughs> he looks like the most miserable prick imaginable. And every single story that I've heard t- tends to basically reinforce that idea. Yeah. A lot in his mind, I guess. The, the collapse of an era. Yeah. <laughs> Many errors. <laughs> Many errors. This is just busy tending to decay, I guess. Yeah. And a, like a, a, a horrible chain smoker, additionally. <laughs> so I think like in the like tar black teeth, <laughs> there's maybe a hint of self Dorian Gray. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, sometimes I think about, you know, who followed Visconti. I don't know that you can. It's almost like he was so intent on like showing the end of an era. It, it almost includes him, himself. You know, he's like the last... Mm. Last hurrah for 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 that, but no, no, entirely. Yeah, I, it's, I, I was thinking about rewatching the film again, mm. and except for the obvious Fassbinder, you know, like the damned, um, I couldn't really think of a lot of directors that seems to be really influenced by him. I mean, there's the obvious like Coppola, mm-hmm. uh, Leopard, uh, uh, Godfather, things like this, but. Anyone else? I was thinking maybe Rivet a little bit um, mm, in say? the use of theater uh oh yeah but maybe just like a stretch of my imagination coppola is interesting not only francis ford but sophia i would say Mm. in terms of this real concern with not only just a concern with the texture of privilege and getting (laughs) as close as possible to touching the hem of the garment (laughs) um but in terms of like the sensibility that shaped Visconti, it's so particular to his upbringing and so particular to the world from which he emerged mm. that I don't know how you make another one of those or if indeed you'd want to. I, I mean, I don't... I, I guess this was implicit in a lot of what we were saying, but he comes from a family that for 200 years... <laughs> ruled Milan <laughs> with an iron fist. I have been to the house in Milan that he grew oh, really? up in and it occupies a city block. <laughs> <laughs> and we talk a lot and rightly so about the role that privilege plays in access to the mechanisms of cinema. But, you know, the wealth of, say, a Sofia Coppola 
is completely nothing, a drop in the bucket <laughs> compared to how insanely, fabulously, <laughs> on both sides of the family, fucking really rich <laughs> Lucino Visconti was. And it can't be repeated enough, a titled aristocrat. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's similar to like, how do you make another Peckinpah, somebody who literally right. grew up in the shadow of a Peckinpah mountain and had <laughs> several generations of frontier judges behind them. <laughs> somebody with that background is going yeah. to have a different sentimental attachment to an idea of the West than anybody else. Similarly, like Lucino Visconti is right. going to have access to a range of feelings about what the European aristocracy had been and had become that I don't think anybody else can really have. Which is not to say, you know, you can't crib moves from him. I would right. say, I, I mean, I would say like James Gray mm. is probably the closest thing to a interpret interpreter of Visconti that we have now, mm. uh, even to the point of having gotten very close to Visconti's White Knights and his film Two Lovers. Right. Um, yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just having the same investment in, in just in, in, in um, staging history. In I, I mean, again, yeah. somebody to whom like texture is yeah, huge, texture. but it's, I mean, this is not the direction that he subsequently moved, but it's part of what makes, I think, the the earlier films extremely interesting is like mm. what happens when you apply a Viscontian approach to like working class tri-state New York. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah. th I mean, a lot of the fascinating tension of those movies yeah. uh, kind of comes out of that applying a very regal and elevated style to a milieu that is not particularly yeah. regal. Like, let's treat, you know, in the yards, James Kahn's, like, <laughs> Flushing Meadows right. Manor as though it's the, you know, palace in the leopard. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, you can't. You almost can't replicate it. And or, it's, it's just easier to treat aristocracy in a kind of ironic way. And, I mean, it's totally understandable. But even something that's, in you know, in its own ways as lush as uh, the death of Louis XIV, you know, the Albert Sarah. I mean, he's he's never going to do something that's not going to have this, you know, kind of bratty <laughs> edge to it. But even something like that, where you can feel like it's a living portrait, like a living, breathing portrait that's the king, it's it's constantly being an undercut. You know, that's that's always the impulse. And I think in Visconti, the style grows. I don't want to say organically because there's nothing fucking organic about the, <laughs> the world that he is immersed in, but it grows very naturally out of the subject matters. I'm thinking in particularly of the like, in particular of the coronation scene that opens Ludwig, where you have all of these very stately mannered gestures and the entire thing moves in this very ritualized fashion. And I don't know how you make that real of film unless you have been completely steeped in these rituals right. 
through your life unless yeah. it's like actually emanating from you like a biorhythm. I don't know quite how else you do it. Yeah, I think you said, what did you say that it's it's rare to get a defector on this <laughs> scale from the- yeah, I mean it's a very weird comparison, but in the American scene, I, I would say like Gore Vidal is an interesting person to look to look at. Yeah, you very rarely get people from the upper, upper echelons, from the right. true por- corridors of power who opt out entirely <laughs> and start, you know, gabbing everything that they right. know. <laughs> and it should be added, like as a defector, like he was known to never surrender any of the creature comforts of his upbringing. <laughs> and, yeah. That goes without saying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Living, living in the lap of, of luxury. Yeah. Living right. like a Venetian doge yeah. to the end of his days. But he's still just Visconti from the block. That's, yeah. That's, 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 Absolutely. <laughs> you see, I mean, you know, actually I'm curious, you know, how, you know, this is kind of our, our perspective and I, because I, I don't feel like I have access to some of the European history in this. So a lot of it, you know, I, I necessarily view as kind of a foreigner, but like, you know, working with like Italian critics and programmers and, and I mean, what, what's their feel for, for it? Um, I mean, you know, as, as a piece of a piece of history, uh, you know, I don't think he was ever the most popular uh, filmmaker for, for programmers. Um, it's, it's personally one of the one like, but I always love the most and want to see the most. I can see them like back to back, like very easily. But it is always after Antonioni for most people, or Rossellini and Pasolini. Uh, most of the time, I, I, I think it's aristocratic, you know, and the epic and the, the velvet that maybe people think it's like you know, period piece and it's not going to translate to people today or the audience. And it's often, not always, but uh, it's not a program that I find the easiest to share with people. Hmm. I, I think we were proven wrong by the audience response. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, Antonioni is always easier. On, on, on we is always always in fashion. Yeah, it's, it, it's yes, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, it's Monica Vitti parting. It's just like yeah, always work. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, I don't know, but it's it's. I mean, it's nice that, that people can kind of lose themselves in in, in, in this, uh, this these films. But there's always you know like like when you program, you find that like for sometimes Fassbinder is totally in and you want to see it, and then. Like a few years later, just like oh, again, like I don't, I'm. It seems like yeah, it doesn't seem to work. And then it comes back up, so it yeah. just goes by waves. Um, yeah, and I feel the same sometimes with filmmakers. I don't. I'm like yeah, I used to like this. I don't know. It yeah. seems like so ten years ago, and yeah. then you revisit and you sometimes you change your mind, um, yeah. but it usually yeah goes in waves. Well, what was what was the film that you're coming back to with Visconti here that you you kind of find a new you know new love for? Um, well, I always love Ludwig and the Leopard, so mm-hmm. it's uh, difficult. I think the Damned. Uh, the Damned. Oh. It's it's something that I loved, and then at some point I was like, I think it's a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And I I go in wave with this one uh, more than anything else. Um, the Stranger is weird. It's so weird. It's yeah. very it's weird. Very it's, weird. Uh, it's very hard to see because there's no U.S. Uh, distributors, and you have to clear right with. Uh, the Camus Estate and the Gallimard uh, Foundation. So there's a lot of layers in getting it. I see. 
And it's not a film that fully works for Camus, you know, in terms of like all his uh, book adaptation, but it's it's very interesting too. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting choice for him, I mean, yeah. to choose that mm-hmm. to adapt. I mean, I, I, almost, I wonder where that came from. Well, I mean, it's worth noting that parallel to his filmmaking practice that Visconti was also a very noteworthy director, not only in opera, but on the stage. And I know he introduced... For example, Tennessee Williams to Italian audiences. Williams also is responsible for the English dialogues and since so. I know he staged Sartre. So even though I think we have a tendency to think of him as some like refugee from the (laughs) mid-19th century, he also had another foot very much in contemporary theater and was very much up on what was happening in the you know mid-century moment so yeah it's not entirely out of left field though no, maybe that, less less of a custom fit for his sensibility yeah it's a weird um, combination i think when you think of uh, visconti of that time but and it's a book that everybody i think has been trying to make on screen and it's just very difficult yeah it's almost like you need the 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 white space on the page to be staring at you <laughs> it's like you can't actually see images you have to be looking at the but it goes back to the music i mean it's not really glam but that's you know the cure <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well also in ossessione uh, even so it's an uncredited adaptation so you can follow the story but he added a lot of elements that are vastly different from the book or like the other adaptation like the homosexual undertone and the like bisexuality like freedom and it and and it's something that you can see again in his like later film that are like modern it's pretty unusual for a film of that yeah, like I, like era and like shot this way too to go this way i mean the <laughs> most striking difference and this is something that i was writing about quite recently the most striking difference between Assessione, i think and any other adaptation. There are a couple, of course. There's the addition of a character who has voices, sympathies that could be read as kind of crypto-communist. But really interesting is right at the head of the movie, Visconti does something very different than I think any other director of a Postman adaptation has done, which is most filmmakers follow the lead of James M. Cain in kind of processing the first sighting of the forbidden uh, roadside diner proprietor's wife through the eyes of the male protagonist. He, you know, is drifting through, sees this hot dish and decides that he's going to stick around (laughs) for a while. Whereas Visconti completely flips that. And it's the actor Massimo Girotti uh, who comes in and you don't see his face, you just see him being sort of rousted off of this truck and uh, you see him wandering into the kitchen of this you know, roadside cafe and diner thing and he goes back in the kitchen and you see the big reveal is him. The big reveal is Massimo Girodi and this like camera movement that sort of swoops up almost worshipfully to show how dark and handsome and hairy-shouldered and you know, brimming with proletarian <laughs> sexual energy he is. And that's very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that scene. Uh, yeah. I just... yeah, but I mean, I think one figure who kind of haunts the Visconti filmography is Wagner. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, who appears, yeah, of course, as a character <laughs> in Ludwig, um, even though the actual film is drenched in Mahler, Death in Venice is, I think, heavily colored mm-hmm. by Wagner's Death in Venice. Sure. Um, the actual uh, German language title for The Damned is, I think, Gottdammerung, uh, Twilight of the Gods. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, like, Wagner... And particularly the sort of Wagnerian idea of a complete artwork, something that combines theatrical staging and music all working together to create this, you know, all Jessum uh, Kunstwerk, I think is the, oh, uh, is the word. Gesundheit. Um, this is very much, I think, primary to the way that especially in the 1960s and into the 1970s, this is primary to the thinking that Visconti had about how he was making films. Music was very, very, very important. His mother, I know, was a musician. He was a very accomplished cellist as a young man. Uh, Again, it goes back to Senso with that opening scene at uh, La Fenice where you have the... Uh, fluttering leaflets coming down from the balconies and this sort of political uprising happening with a operatic backdrop Mm. and all of the camera movements very much coordinated and working in time with the music. Um, I, you know, I think, I think this cannot be overstated that he was somebody who was very, very preoccupied with trying to work in a visual sense, but with, uh, work visually with an idea towards a kind of operatic or symphonic idea of movements and so yeah. on and so forth. Well, all the more reason to see it on the big screen. This podcast will probably be out in the midst of Ludwig's run, and then there will be more screenings yeah, in July. We, we were able to add a few screenings in July, in July. Um, so we're going to play uh, again Death in Venice, Leopard, Rocco, the Innocent, uh, which I love. We didn't talk about it, but it's oh. also a great, great film. Yeah. Um, a few are not available here. I mean, actually, most of them are not available here. So yeah. we had to import prints and copies from Italy. Yeah. Uh, so while you, you know, while it's playing here, you should see it because I yeah. don't know when we can Absolutely. bring back the innocent. It might be the end of the era <laughs> for good. Um, no, in 10 years or 20 ten years. years. I'll, I'll do it again. <laughs> You'll do it again. It's okay. almost like the fading of the aristocracy. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Oh. But with film programming. <laughs> oh, boy. The yes. last celluloid <laughs> rattling through the projector. I, I think that point of uh, Ludwig on 35, yeah, yeah most likely. We're, all, we're uh, all actually covered in <laughs> dust right <laughs> now. Cobwebs connect us. Yeah. Well, that's a good good moment to decay to, for us to end on as we all hobble off into the into the sunset. Um, I guess uh, you know we have traditionally ended with the the, the last film you saw. Uh, I, I see no reason to to banish that tradition since I, it, it convinces everyone that we actually are watching movies. <laughs> but movies outside of Visconti? Outside of Visconti, yeah. Oh, my last non-Visconti film? Last non-Visconti film. Well, I, I watched uh, Page of Madness last night with the Alloy oh, playing. Um, yeah. A new that? restoration. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's pretty much anti-Viscontian. Okay. <laughs> <And so laughs> 
the plot is mostly elusive, but it looked yeah. it looked great and it was really an amazing experience. Well, I, I have to say I don't know what that's about. Exactly. I think no one knows exactly. <laughs> you can figure out like the first ten minutes and then yeah. you're just like it's like is it Marasad in Japan? I don't oh. really know <laughs> which one is a mother, which one is a daughter, uh -huh. <laughs> which the inmate or the doctor, you know, it, but it's yeah. it's pretty great. Yeah. It's not really current, but that was my last yeah. movie. No, I, 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 want, I wanted to see that. But oh, I saw Hereditary, otherwise. Oh, it was the well, last oh, new film. You have to tell us what you think of Hereditary. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> I really like the third okay. uh, part and then yeah. it went down. Not that great for me. But, mm, okay. Mm. No, I've, I've definitely heard yeah. that. Mm -hmm. heard that that's reaction. Mr. Pinkerton? Uh, I saw Incredibles 2 by myself <laughs> the other night. Okay. By yourself? Yeah. <laughs> you, you didn't find well, you couldn't to specify. kidnap a child. <laughs> yeah, because I wasn't with my family. <laughs> Unlike the gentleman critic of the New Yorker. <laughs> you didn't have a retinue with you at all. No, I didn't have to cool my groin with a soda pop. Maybe you haven't been following this. <laughs> um that's good. good. A lot of yeah. you know, a lot of fine filigreed gag work. Yeah. A couple chuckles. Couple chuckles. All right, very good. Shed uh, shed a couple salty tears over that bow short. Yeah, went back home happy. <laughs> <laughs> and now I have to remember what I most recently saw. Um, for some reason, all I can think is that I saw this Blu-ray of the Executioner's song, which was uh, sort of an ordeal, um, although I guess <laughs> worth it for the end. Supposed but to be a movie you like. Yeah, like, a movie on the big, on the big screen. You should, it has to be a movie <sighs> on the big screen. That I liked? I mean, it's... Um, oh, anything. Anything. Well, it would have to be one of the, one of the Visconti. It was Death in Venice. There we okay. go. I mean, uh, I, but yeah, I guess we were saying non-Viscontis, but what can I say? Um, it would probably be, be that. The, yeah, the, the opening. I meant to only see the, the opening, and then I stayed for longer than that. I do this a lot. I'm like, I'm not staying. I've yeah, seen that film 10 you, times. I'm not taking a seat. Yeah. Two hours later, I'm still standing in the back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. well, I could have taken a seat. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. been the cause of a lot of leg cramps for me. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up there. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.